Through the fathomless depths of space swims the star turtle, the great Atuan. And on its back are five nerds trying to figure out just what it is that makes their terry pratchets work both timely and timeless. So grab your trusty fire poker, try not to think about where planetary warts come from, and join us on our journey through Hogfather and the complete discography. Tonight we're skipping ahead two books in the series and breaking our own rules because we're so bummed out by interesting times and jumping ahead to Hogfather. It was originally published in 1996 and it's the 20th book in the series. And we are joined as a special treat to us uh, by the person who, after Terry Pratchett, is probably the person most responsible for this podcast uh, because the four of us met uh, through the one-shot Discord and the one shot Discord wouldn't exist without James D'Amato. Hello, heroes. For the people who picked up uh, this podcast through Terry Pratchett and not through us yelling about it on the one shot Discord, would you like to introduce yourself, James? Of course. Uh, my name is James D'Amato. I am the host of the One Shot and Campaign Skyjacks podcasts, and also the president of the One Shot Podcast Network, which hosts a litany of content all about tabletop gaming, uh, both through podcasts, streams, and videos. Um, I also happen to be the author of the Ultimate RPG Guide series, uh, published by Adams Media, uh, an imprint of Simon & Schuster. So, you know, it, whatever you're looking for vis-a-vis -vis gaming content, I've, I've got something for you. If you like this show because you like Terry Pratchett stuff, I highly recommend you check out Campaign Skyjacks. It is not as good as Terry's uh, writing, but it is enjoyable and uh, definitely something created by uh, someone who has a deep affection for everything Sir Terry did in his life. In, in honor of the themes that Terry plays with in Hogfather. Uh, I'm hoping that we have a special book specific title for ourselves tonight, uh, revolving around the theme of anthropomorphic personifications. For example, I am Aaron, the niche podcast gremlin. I'm Anna, and I'm a yarn remnant fairy. This means that I steal the bits that will be useful someday and deposit mysterious, useless scraps in their place. I am Minna. I'm the god of putting the laundry basket directly where you will stub your toes on it in the dark, even though you could swear it was two feet away. I am Justin, the dice propagator. I am James, the death of unusable podcast audio. <laughs> Brilliant. So how did you first find uh, Discworld? So I first found Discworld through a friend in middle school. I think I was in seventh grade when my friend Arthur Wilderson uh, recommended, oddly enough, uh, Mort to me. And, you know, it was just the sort of thing for like a slightly nerdy and a little bit like... I, how do I want to put this? Early 2000s webcomic edgy, like uh, a young tween, uh, because, you know, it was about death, but I didn't, I, I wasn't actually interested in like edgy nonsense. What I was interested in uh, was like slightly morbid things presented in kind of a fun and endearing way. And that's what Terry Pratchett's death is. Uh, so I 
instantly fell in love with the concept. And when I started reading the book and, and death, uh, you know, became a character that I was familiar with, I fell madly in love with everything about it uh, and went on to read so many other books in the Discworld series. Have you read like all 41 at this point? I have not. And that's partially because I haven't been able to bring myself to read all of them. It is... <sighs> It is a tough thing to think about the fact that there aren't going to be any more. Um, so, you know, reading the ones that I haven't read, which at this point, I, I think it's just the last book in the Moist von Lipwig cycle. I it, it is a hard thing to even begin thinking about facing. Um, and uh, yeah, so so I've I've held on to that, though. I, I did I did read Shepherd's Crown, which is his last book, which is kind of a perfect way for it is a perfect period to put on the series but you know there's something about opening a new terry pratchett book uh or a new to you terry pratchett book that i i'm not ready to be at a point in my life where i've had that joy for the last time i completely understand that feeling yeah, we're the conceit of this podcast is that Justin is reading all of these books for the first time uh, and reading it in really not the best order, which is completely chronological. Um, <laughs> oh no, Justin. we started. We started with Color of Magic. <laughs> we have, hey, well, the worst of it is behind you. Yeah, which is yep, we're, good news. Yeah, we've read interesting times. We're we're clear, and I've read. At this point, all but Shepherd's Crown. And when we read it for the podcast, it's going to be my first time reading it. And oh, wow. I'm already scared. Yeah, and I'm, I'm in the same place as Aaron. Um, so we both have read through everything except for Shepherd's Crown, which is sitting on my bookshelf untouched. We may have to like push it off by a few episodes by watching some of the BBC adaptations and, you know, so maybe suffering through the watch. Us, except and... for you, James, has read Shepherd's <laughs> Crown. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, I'll tell you, it's a good one, but oh my God, will it get you? That's why, that's why I think none of us have read it yet. Dylan warned us we'd have to like put it down and take a walk a few times. Yeah. There, there are two things that I've learned about doing a podcast on Discworld. One is that if you tell people you haven't read Discworld yet, like I was at the start of this project, they will immediately, people will immediately gush their favorite thing, which is delightful. But also that like basically the entire Discworld fandom exists in that flux state of I do not want to finish a last book. Yeah, which I mean, thankfully, you do have, you know, books like Nation and the sci-fi that Terry has written, like, you can branch out. But, I, you know, there is something uh, to me very special about what he was doing with Discworld. Uh, for whatever reason, I feel like Terry was able to say more through fantasy than than sci-fi. There, there are always other things, but boy, howdy, uh, is it difficult to think about the fact that it just can't go on forever. So if you were to run a game in Discworld, other than the GURPS version, what system do you think you would lean towards? No Dice, No Masters, or Belonging Outside Belonging. It mm. has two titles, and Avery has said they are both acceptable, um, but that's what I would do. Uh, those systems, if you have not tried them, are about... Uh, reinforcing character and narrative momentum. Basically, characters are given uh, 
weak moves, which create problems uh, for their character, normal moves, which reinforce the central themes of a character, and strong moves, which resolve problems. There are a couple of other fiddly bits, but uh, you know, when it comes down to it in a Discworld book, uh, you have characters that fill like kind of these archetypal roles. And I, I think No Dice, No Masters, Belonging Outside Belonging, whatever you want to call it, is a great thing to capture that and not limit people by mechanics so much. Allow people to cause problems and solve problems as they like in a way that, uh, you know, reinforces uh, your power to declare things, which I, I think you kind of need. You know, I I have played the GURPS Discworld and I don't think GURPS was a great fit for it just because... <laughs> It trying to put numbers to funny, it doesn't really work. <laughs> um, so th- there are a few things in GURPS Discworld that I did love. Like I love the flaws, uh, like things that they pulled out. Like literal minded is a flaw in the Discworld GURPS, and boy howdy is that a, a fun thing to play with. Like if you really stick with that as part of the personality of your character, you can have some fun stuff with it. But uh, for the most part, I, I think you need a more story driven kind of non-traditional system to back up uh, Discworld effectively. The thing that perhaps I think most important about thinking about a Discworld role-playing system is that having one that is all-encompassing I don't think works very well. Between the different cycles, there is a kind of dramatic shift of what problems are presented and how they resolve themselves. Uh, You know, a witch game should not feel like a watch game. And, and we've had the thought of using Swords of the Serpentine for a watch-esque game mm. because something gumshoe might actually fit that quite well. Yes. I mean, watch, hey, they're mystery books in like so many different terms, you know, especially stuff like Thud or Snuff. Yeah. Like mm. so many classic like mystery tropes are playing into that. I think you could have a lot of fun with that. That's a treat waiting for you in about a year or two, Justin. Remember if I've read Snuff. I think I have only read Thud backwards. Snuff is cool. You read Thud backwards? <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> let's dissect this. When I first got into Discworld, I was grabbing whatever the library had available as audiobooks. So mm. Thud was my first Vimes book proper. Wow. So that's, wow. that's quite a swing, yeah. Wow. I went from Monstrous Regiment, where I was like, Vimes seems cool. Thud, that's a Vimes book. You can read these out of order, right? You can. It's just weird. Then Nightwatch. Then Guards, Guards, Men at Arms. That's wild. That's a wild progression. Okay, to be fair, I don't think I would have been as attached to Vimes and like kept on with this series if I had started at Guards, Guards, especially yeah. in yeah. Men at Arms, because I'm not a huge... I can never remember what happens in Men at Arms. Uh, Men at Arms, I, I think actually rules mm-hmm. like i i do like men at arms i i think guards guards is definitely the weakest in the series though which is a shame because i think it has the best sybil um mm-hmm. but 
it's comparing Terry's older writing to his like, you know, more matured writing, yeah. uh, which he gets better. Justin, that's something yeah, that yeah. I'm just so happy for you. These like exponentially, <laughs> the, the, if you enjoyed this, just wait, pal. Yeah. The joke was, was that like, initially when we started doing these, I would like, we, we would just like, I've got, I've, I would just like grab a bottle and just start pouring <laughs> During <laughs> while somebody was doing the summary, and I have and the only book I've had to do that in like the last five or six months is uh, interesting times. Yeah, yeah, which I remember enjoying in the early nineties. It is fun Conan parody, but yeah, I'm not Some sure. I'm not sure how to even go that far. I like Cohen, and that's what I mean when I say it's fun Conan parody. It's that oh, it's an old man. Yeah, I like charming. I like mm-hmm. Cohen. The rest of the Silver Horde is uh, questionable. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it, it comes better in the Last Hero. Yeah, mm-hmm. was but. better than a lot of Rincewind books because it was very well plotted. So, James, I have a question for you about Discworld. Just is is, uh, is there a particular sub series that you're that you're most in love with? Yeah, uh, Tiffany Aikings, like uh, almost unquestionably, I love that. I also love the witches generally, and and Tiffany's stories are tied very closely to the witches, especially the first three books in in her cycle. I feel weird about it, and. Don't let this color your opinion of uh, Shepherd's Crown at all and what I think of Shepherd's Crown. I think after Wintersmith, uh, the Aching series like loses some of what drew me into it. I-, I still love Tiffany and I love the way the character is written and how she thinks. So I love that series so much. But yeah, it- it's got to be between Tiffany and the witches like... Everything Granny Weatherwax, I I adore her as a character. And all that said, like Night Watch is just a masterpiece of a book. Uh, so I I truly truly love that one. Anyway, we should move on. Yeah, and talk a little bit about uh, Hogfather. So, twas the night before Hog's Watch, and much was afoot. The auditors of reality, acting unofficially, of course purchase a very odd contract from the Assassin's Guild, uh, who then set the brilliant but cruel Mr. Tea Time to fulfill it. Tea Time, excuse me. Tea Time. Tea Time. Let's be real here. (laughs) Tea Time. Tea Time quickly assembles a plan and a diverse set of criminals, a locksmith and a wizard, to fulfill the contract. The group hijack a cart carrying teeth for the Tooth Fairy franchise and enter the portal to... Wherever the teeth go. In the tower, the group quickly dispatches the guards, assembles a pile of something, and the wizard gets to work. Meanwhile, Tea Time tasks the locksmith with opening a door at the top of the tower. In Unseen University, meanwhile, Arch Chancellor Ridcully has discovered a boarded up bathroom designed by Bloody Stupid Johnson and orders it renovated. And a strange chiming sound occurs after he describes the Veruca gnome, who, of course, works like the Tooth Fairy, but instead of taking teeth, leaves Verucas. 
Ridcully captures said gnome in his newly renovated bathroom and brings the creature to the magical supercomputer Hex, which has grown substantially since we last saw it, to try to make sense of the situation. Offhand, Ridcully also mentions the logical conclusion that there must be a god of hangovers to go with the god of wine. And the chime appears again. Deep under the sea, Death senses that something is amiss with the universe. He sets off to try to fix it and is next seen by the death of rats, climbing out of a chimney, dressed in a red and white robe and false beard, and holding a sack of presents. Death and Albert fly off in the Hogfather's sleigh, and we learn that belief in the Hogfather has evaporated, and that Death is trying to restore that belief by taking the Hogfather's place for the night. Susan Stowe-Hellett, Death's granddaughter, is attempting to live a, a normal human life as a governess in Ankh-Morpork. Her no-nonsense approach includes efficiently dispatching monsters in the basement with her trusty fire poker, alongside more traditional tutoring and minding the children. This is all disrupted, again, when the Death of Rats shows up, accompanied by Quoth the Raven. They try to enlist her help in the ongoing situation with her grandfather. She attempts to shoo them off, only to have Death himself pop out of the chimney in his new outfit. She's concerned that he has gone insane, or harmed the Hogfather, or possibly both, and her curiosity is further piqued when Death absolutely, concretely forbids her from investigating or getting involved in any way. We call that the veterinary. Pretty much. <laughs> where, where do you think he learned it from, perhaps? So once, once Death leaves, Susan stops time and rides off on Binky to Death's realm to try to figure out what's going on. She finds that the Hogfather's lifetimer, the hourglass measuring the time remaining in his life, has been smashed and rides off again toward his domain, the Castle of Bones, where she finds evidence of Death and Albert's recent presence. She also finds the newly incarnated Oh God of hangovers, Bilius, <laughs> and rescues him just as the castle collapses. Meanwhile, Death has been diversifying his hogfather portfolio from the the old down-the-chimney, fill-the-stocking, sooty footprint-on-the-mat shtick. He sets himself up in the Hog's Watch grotto of a fancy department store, producing gifts from his sack for all the children who are waiting in line to meet the hogfather. Those attending are particularly impressed by his real live pigs with real live bodily functions and the fact that his sack produces exactly what the children want, regardless of the store inventory. His next job isn't one for the Hogfather, though. He's meant to claim the soul of a little match girl who's dying of exposure. He chooses to save her instead, but is beginning to learn that Hogswatch is not a time of universal joy and plenty. This thread continues as he visits a peasant and rescues the man from the overbearing charity of the king and learns that he's not supposed to give poor children all the presents on their list. In a fit of pique, he steals the food from a fancy restaurant and gives it to a group of Ankh-Morpork beggars, replacing it with mud and old boots. As a next step in her attempt to figure out what's going on, Susan brings Bilius to the wizards on the theory that they might be able to sober him up and get something useful out of him. The wizards debate the best way to approach this challenge and eventually land on mixing up every known hangover cure and feeding it to the O-God. Amazingly, this works. And he helps the wizards realize that what's happening is new anthropomorphic personifications are being incarnated. 
the wizards being who they are, proceed to accidentally summon the Eater of Socks, a bird that devours pencils, a swarm of flying creatures that steals towels, a god of indigestion, and the Cheerfulness Fairy. Hex has a hypothesis. A major force of belief has been removed, and new beings are springing up from the overflow of unclaimed belief. Realizing that this major force is probably the Hogfather, the wizards head to the library to hang up their stockings and wait. Amidst the chaos, Bilius remembers something from just before he incarnated. Teeth. Susan, the O-God, Death of Rats, and the Raven all head out to do some sleuthing. They get the address of the local tooth fairy, Violet, and find that she is missing, and head off to investigate her most recent tooth pickup location, the home of Banjo, the simple-minded member of Tea Time's group. He's also missing, and the group leave once again, this time to Death's Domain, to see if Violet's autobiography has any useful information. Indeed, the book leads the group to the Tooth Fairy's domain, a reality similar to death's but shaped instead by children's minds. Meanwhile, in the Tooth Fairy's tower, things have been growing more and more tense. The criminals are alarmed by Tea Time's unpredictability, uh, and the wizard and locksmith are struggling with the lock. The wrongness of the place is also getting to them. Outside the tower, there's blue sky overhead and green something underfoot, but nothing in between except for a perfectly yellow circle of sun. Goldfish swim on top of an opaque blue stream, and red apples grow out of green masses at the top of brown tree trunks. From the outside, the tower is a square house with four windows and a corkscrew of smoke coming out of the chimney, and on the inside, it's a giant tower with Escher-esque staircases. While sacking the tower, the criminals find a, the huge stash of money and start to bicker over their reward, which Tea Time does not appreciate. The locksmith reaches peak frustration and starts to leave, and Tea Time, order, and Tea Time orders Banjo to kill him. The giant man tosses the locksmith down the stairs, and Susan and Bilius arrive just in time to see his broken body tumble to the bottom and then vanish. Upon reaching the tower and its pile of teeth surrounded by a magic circle, Susan figures out what Tea Time's party has been up to. They've used the pile of teeth to control the children and remove their belief in the Hogfather. Tea Time orders the criminals to kill Susan and Bilius, but the group fractures, consumed one by one by their childhood fears. The two find and rescue Violet, and Susan realizes that she doesn't have power in this reality, since death isn't a thing that children fully understand. Susan heads up the stairs to confront Tea Time, just in time as the wizard has finally figured out the trick to the locks. Back at the university, the wizards are shocked to find death climb down the chimney. Uh, they didn't even perform the rite of Ashkente. Death explains the situation. If the Hogfather is not restored... The sun will not rise. Death instructs Hex to believe in the Hogfather and does his best with the computer's wish list of gifts. In the tower, the wizard completes the locks and flees, and Susan, disconcertingly normal without her powers, is captured by Tea Time. Tea Time steals Death's sword from Susan, but it, like her, has no power here. The two struggle, and Tea Time overbalances, falls down the tower, and vanishes. Susan instructs Banjo to sweep all the teeth out of the circle as she heads into the now-unlocked room. Inside, she finds the original Tooth Fairy, an ancient bogeyman who meant to protect children from just this sort of magic. 
After expending so much energy scaring the criminals, the creature dies and vanishes, and Susan tasks Banjo with taking care of the tower, the teeth, and the franchise. Susan's work is not yet done, though. As she rides on Binky, she encounters Death, who steers them back to the Hogfather's domain. The two see a giant boar being harried by the auditors, now in the shape of hunting dogs, who have decided to take matters into their own hands. Susan drops down and rides the boar, guiding it to safety and then defending it from the auditors. The auditors themselves come to the disconcerting realization that they're now alive enough to die, and death polishes them off. The two head back to the home where Susan is working, and Susan begins to make cocoa. They are interrupted, however, by Tea Time, who reappeared in the normal world in the midst of the wizard's feast and was revived by them. He calls in the children and is dismayed to find that they are far more afraid of him than of Death, who is currently eating a biscuit. Susan throws her trusty poker, which passes easily through Death and impales Tea Time. The poker only hurts monsters. Death takes Tea Time's soul and his body to save Susan some hassle, and everyone gets to sit down to enjoy their early Hogswatch morning. We see a bunch of characters that we are previously familiar with returning uh, I think the thing that we all like a lot about this book is that the wizards know that they their place is in the B-plot. Yeah, the wizards are so good here. <laughs> the, I think the wizards really are best used to productively or creatively not solve a problem. That mm-hmm. like That's what I want to see out of them, and they really pull that off. Yeah, they just help explain the problem and uh, illustrate it, and we get to see them futz around and figure out that they don't know shit. And, oh, and of course, they, they get to revive the main antagonist. Oh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Out of, I mean, good God, you know, get some, breathe some life into him. Oh, guys. Speaking of antagonists, this is sort of the most like actively murderous, I feel like, antagonist we've seen at this point in the, in the books. Yeah, Tea Time is is one of the wickedest villains that uh, we get to experience in Pratchett's like history of writing villains. Like, I'm I'm trying to think of, I, I'm I'm really at a loss to find villains that are as cold and as destructive. Uh, Perhaps as Carcer. Yeah, the only other one we can think Carcer. of is Carcer, but we can't talk about Carcer because that would spoil things for Justin. For sure, but we can mention that he exists. <laughs> yeah, I think the only other the only other like villain that we've encountered so far with even matches like Tea Time's body count is Edward Death. Mm. Mm. Yeah, the the other one um, would be the the antagonist in Small Gods. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think Tea Time is like part, maybe approaching the peak of it. Carcer, I think you could make a good like argument for, but approaching the peak of like the quality of someone who is truly not only willing to do bad things, but kind of invested in doing bad things and the presence that gives uh, them around normal people. And that, mm-hmm. that, that includes people who do for their jobs, bad things like mm-hmm. all those like thugs that he was powing around with, like do unspeakable things as their job, but they look at tea time and go, okay, this guy, there's something wrong with this guy. Yeah. Even the assassins think there's something wrong with him. Although that's more of like a <laughs> style. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I feel like the assassins 
would get along very well with Mycroft Holmes. I don't know why that's my sole impression of them. Yeah, oh, yeah, I for sure because Mycroft Holmes is so close to to our boy Vetinari anyway. So, <laughs> and there's God. there's a line early on with the introduction of Tea Time as well. His his parents died when he was very young. In retrospect, they should have thought more about that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I know that the term mental is not really one that we commonly use anymore, but, you know, there's the line where they were talking about, like, what's the difference between mental and eccentric? It's, you know, a lot of money. (laughs) I will say I'm not a huge fan of this specific villain type, partly because of that stereotyped, like... Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is playing with a lot of disabilities as markers of villainy, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Because Tea Time also is missing an eye like and the other eye is uh, weird mm-hmm. yeah the, and you know what what i will say is that terry is not inventing these tropes and i think to a certain point he is invoking these tropes but he's not really invoking them to subvert them right which i, I think yeah. ultimately like any problems you feel about tea time as a character are really valid concerns um mm. it's you know, the, the only defense for it, which isn't even a defense, is, hey, this was written a very long time ago, and it was playing with tropes that are even older than that. Yeah. We also see Susan uh, again, uh, who we haven't seen since Soul Music. Uh, and it, it's interesting to me how, like, looking at how he does, Terry does things with sort of bottle plots and then also, and then later in the books, he's like, no, I actually do want the the events to affect the world because like soul music, he very specifically is like, okay, and retcon. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we see Susan who is very, is older and clearly has continued to be affected by stuff, even if she doesn't necessarily remember it. I'm, I'm not clear on that. Yeah. I thought that Susan remembered everything, you know, because Susan is, uh, you know, Susan's not, not quite human. Yeah. Okay, I did want to ask something about Susan because, like, I, I, I don't think this is a thing I found confusing about it, but this is more just an observation I have. But it feels like with Susan, and I discussed this with Aaron, like, while we were, while I was reading the book, but it feels like Susan is like a meta narrative magnet that things become like more archetypal around her. Yes, the kids slipping into like very stereotypical kid speak. And that Susan is, like, fighting a battle for, like, regular, like, actual, the way that people actually talk to reassert itself. Yes. I, I, like, I mean, that that is one of the cool things that I think Susan gets to play with just as a character is that, you know, death runs in the family <laughs> and death is a... Is is a conceptual construct, like getting an anthropomorphic form. So, you know, she exerts that over the universe and constantly is dealing with what is what is reality versus what is perceived or believed reality. Like in soul music, like that whole romance plot, like I I think you could make a really big argument for that being like, well, how do I even know if this is real? Because like, of course a romance would happen in all of this. Yeah. I love Susan so much and she's so much more solid here than she is in soul music. Yes. Well, I mean, this is, this book gets to be more about her, Mm -hmm. which is, I, I think better. Yeah. It's also just such a good death book. It's it's really fun to see her and death specifically. Like they're not 
together during a lot of it, but they're like kind of on reverse journeys just mm. in their lives in general. Like death is always reaching for, I mean, I guess they're both reaching for humanity, but from different directions almost like, yes, well, it's more that death is reaching from humanity from being specifically death. And Susan is trying not to become more death E from her place of humanity, but failing. And our best boy, Death of Rats. <laughs> the Grim Squeaker. Yep. The Grim Squeaker is an all-time. <laughs> we've got we've got Quoth the Raven too, which I actually like in this one. He's a lot less gross than in. Uh, yeah. He just wants um, eyeballs. Yeah. yeah. It, it, yeah. He, he's he's a lot more single-minded, and the single-minded is on eyeballs. And you know, I can work with that. <laughs> Uh, any other important characters we need to touch on, or should we just... I mean, we could say the Hogfather as a concept, but that... that... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, may, it might be a worthwhile thing to introduce, because the Hogfather does not come up, I think, in a lot of other books that, that I can remember. Yeah. Which, you know, <laughs> like, you insinuate this Santa Claus-esque figure in into the <laughs> universe. Um, it is a weird thing that we don't see echoes of it really uh, hit the rest of the Discworld for pretty much the rest of the run. Yeah. I mean, Hog's Watch Night is touched on here and there. Uh, yeah, it's mentioned. The soul, soul Kick Duck and all that kind of stuff. Which I don't think he ever actually explains. He just—it's one of those great things where he's just like, "And there's this thing that I'm going to just press, and yep. you have to guess what it is." <laughs> well, we now know that it lays chocolate eggs. Yeah, we're we're sort of done with ink more pork children, too. From here on out, um, that you know, that that um, it's it sort of makes sense that in the adult focused plots. Um, we wouldn't, we could get Hogs Watch, but not necessarily the Hogfather because, you know, I think most of us as adults would think about the holidays, but not really, not really think about Santa Claus very much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, other than like, I guess that's a thing. Um, and we're, we're sort of out of, with the exception of Tiffany, we're sort of out of the kid zone. Well, well there's a very small Morris. child. Yeah. Oh yeah. There's more. I guess not an Ankh Morpork. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I guess a lot of the things that that happen with a certain child that I can't tip off to Justin about, um, mm-hmm. but you can say a name and I'll just like it'll no. just fly over my head. Sam. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I mean, yeah, I, I I think that is funny. Like we, I, the only other times I feel like kids are brought up is in reference to Vimes being young. Like when he talks about the wild gangs of children that roved around Eggmore Pork. Um, but yeah, you're right. We don't get anything really from their perspective. And even here, it's not really from their perspective. It's from the perspective of someone who can see the world the way children see the world. Right. And, you know, one of the things that I was thinking about as we were doing prep for this is like, thinking about how old Ree Pratchett would be at the time. And I was just looking and she would have, she would have been 20 when, when Hogfather was published. Just, you know, thinking because one of the things kind of like with, with Justin reading these books and getting to see them through his eyes for the first time, you know, being the father of young kids, I feel like I learn a lot about the world through their understanding of the world. Hmm. So I feel like a lot of the characterizations he does really, to me, strike me as things that a, sometimes that a dad would think of or a parent. 
uh, a, hmm. a non-gender specific parent. I don't know. Yeah. It, you know, it's reasonable. Like, thinking ahead, you know, you touched on Tiffany and Tiffany is like the best young female protagonist written by a man that I can think of. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's hard to beat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tiffany's also the best of the Terry coming of age narratives because hmm. we've had we've had a bunch of them and she's she's by far the best. Yeah, I, I think she is a refinement of that, which, hey, this is all stuff that Justin gets to look forward. To. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Did we, by we've the got, way, yeah. we've got two years of this. Did we explain who the Hogfather, like what the Hogfather is like? What his yeah. Are? Yeah. So, yeah. Let's actually talk about the Hogfather. So the Hogfather uh, comes on Hogwarts. Hogs Watch Night, which is the longest night of the year, I assume, in the second winter. I don't remember what the seasons are like. It's December 32nd. I'm not sure if Terry does at this point. <laughs> yeah, but there's like two sets of seasons. I drew out a diagram once and I don't remember it. Anyway, so Hogs Watch Night is the longest night of the year. And on that night, the Hogfather comes and brings presents. The Hogfather is basically Santa Claus if he had pigs instead of reindeer. He drinks a glass of sherry and you have what turnips for the pigs yeah. and like mm-hmm. meat pies for hog father which feels transgressive <laughs> <laughs> i mean that's just realistic um <laughs> you're also supposed to not get beans to the hog father right or, or beans are a very bad thing well that's a different that's like an older tradition it feels like yeah where if you yeah. if you're the one who eats the bean you get hunted down question yeah, yeah. they're, they're playing kind of with, the, your... with the king's cake a little bit uh, trope there they fold in a couple holidays too yeah. yeah yeah and and that's sort of the the thing that uh that we should touch on too that the the hog father in the the present day of the book is you know the most current way that the hog father presents itself and there's these previous iterations that you know have gone down season upon season uh because the, the, the other thing that the hog father does is i guess dies and brings the sun again yeah with the with the idea that old gods old gods new do new jobs that they they have mm-hmm. to evolve with times or get left behind so i guess it's also the shortest day which is you it, know, yes it is the shortest day yeah. and the longest night yeah, uh, gets brought up with Rid. God's got to be industry proof. <laughs> um, but it's really kind of playing with the ideas about like pagan celebrations repurposed for Christianity, only give it a discworld veneer. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we get references throughout the book of various traditions that have either been passed down, reinvented, or misunderstood about the Hogfather throughout the book, which I think is a, it's a very fun thread to follow. Yeah. Which culminates in Susan sort of watching the Hogfather re-evolve from the pig that died to bring the sun back to Jolly Man in the red coat. Was, was there anything that people were confused about with with this one? Because there there is something for me, which is that I always I always feel like the timeline of this book is sort of unclear. Um, that in particular. The, the span of tea times timeline relative to like everything else that's occurring. There's some hand waving of the that the repercussions from the hogfather being taken out of action spread into the past, but it's kind of fuzzy. So that, that's always something where it's it's uh, a little bit confusing at what point 
all the initial tea time stuff is happening. I would agree with that. I, I do think the timeline is uh, a little bit distracting in this book. Every time I read this, I spend way too much cognitive power trying to figure out when things are happening. That's cognitive power I could have been using to read the book. I think death quite early on said that the effects have been spreading into the past. And from then on, I'm just like, okay, cool. The Teotema timeline is happening at a different time. And I think that it was constructed that way to kind of like draw out the mystery of how he had done this thing and how it was going to get mm -hmm. fixed. Yeah. To pull that yes. towards the end of the book. Yeah, because I think otherwise you'd have all, otherwise you'd really have all of the tea time stuff like compressed into like 20 pages at like the first part of the book, I think. Yeah. And you would yeah. know yeah. how he had pulled off the thing mm -hmm. way too early, I think. Yeah. But it ends up sort of interspersed of it, and there's not, there's not yeah. a lot of narrative cues that it is inter interwoven timelines. Yeah. Um, which, by the way, I do want to draw to the point that Tea Time's plan is actually very good. Oh, yeah. Like, the this is like, this like, is... He's brilliant. He's controlling... Like, the second they started talking about the teeth being piled up, I'm like, that's why the Tooth Fairy's involved. Because you know... Oh, my God. That is... Like, Tea Time's plan is... Um, we left some D&D players in, a, in, like, a locked room for way too long, and they came to us with this, and we figured, yeah, sure, why not? Had to work. Terry you know, was a tabletop gamer and it shows in a lot of what he does, like especially the Rincewind books where, <laughs> you know, kind of openly they are playing D&D, &D, uh, the gods are playing D&D &D against each other. But, you know, the, I, I would wholly agree that this whole thing is definitely like such a gaming the system type idea. And I do love that they introduce tea time as, oh yeah, I've already thought about how to do this, you know, just <laughs> yeah. in case I ever got the opportunity. It's like, of course, of absolutely, of course. The fact that he has a file on death. Oh, and, and he's so enthusiastic about the fact that he might actually get to kill death. This is like, you know, it's it's like Hugs Watch morning, man. Which does, it says something that the most evil being that Terry really ever portrays is just a gamer, huh? <laughs> oh no. <laughs> There's Ooh. also something very classical about Tiatema with some of his stuff, like the thing where he's like, if I, I'm not a thief, but if I were, I would be the kind that steals fire from the gods. And he mm -hmm. just really reminds me of a lot of like these people who'd get like evoked in I know them because they get evoked in Shakespeare, but just like hubris. This man is hubris and also no morals. <laughs> and so the funny thing is that he's smart hubris, right? A lot of characters that we see with a lot of hubris are, it's not particularly well earned. And it really is for him. Like he comes extremely close to succeeding. Mm -hmm. maybe not even so much hubris is like he's specifically a very machiavellian villain i feel that he just like has absolutely no feelings about you know what the repercussions are or you know what the morality of it is he just he just wants that power he wants to do the thing yeah it, it, like there is a i can't remember which comedian was talking about it they were talking about uh the difference between someone being arrogant and someone being smug. And I, I don't, I really don't know which one ended up in which column, but like the idea is that one of them is the person actually has whatever ability to back it up. They're both irritating. 
um, and they're both bad, but you know, one of them is fully invested in abilities that they don't have. And the other one is fully invested in abilities that they do have. Uh, and it turns out as, uh, you can f- discover through Terry Pratchett's writing throughout his career, both of them are very destructive. <laughs> yeah. I like how he highlights what you're talking about too, by subverting it when, tea time meets people who don't know to be afraid of him and he's like i'm your worst nightmare and they're like oh the one about the cabbages and the rotating blades oh that's that's a good scene Um, and that that also i love that that is a bit of foreshadowing for what ultimately happens to all those dudes is that they get consumed by their worst nightmares (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah so justin just give us your unvarnished like overall opinion of the book Okay, so I, I will I'll go into this with so, some context things. We already know that for for the past fifteen however however books, I I have been a I have been unabashed death stan. I am a big fan of Christmas movies, but a, a specific genre of Christmas movies. Um, and Hex is sort of kind of like like very quickly becoming one of my favorite things. So we're gonna go ahead and say that like just this book slaps and is probably the best one we've done so far i'm like th- this is like we're talking like by edges here but it might be the best it's definitely the one that had me highlighting a lot of things <laughs> yeah minna you said you had not read this one or you had? i had not read this one i've seen part of the miniseries not the whole thing there's definitely things that r- rung familiar as well that i'm like i don't think that I saw this far into the miniseries, though. So, I mean, I must have seen quotes floating around. Yeah, it's one of the most quoted. But this is my first time with the full thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. And for, for me, this is, you know, this is my, probably my absolute favorite Discworld book. Um, there are many that are extremely good, but just personal taste put this puts this one at number one. And there's so much in this. One, I think my favorite thing is that it, it's like the spiritual successor to Small Gods, no pun intended. And it hones to a razor's edge a lot of the stuff that Terry first first toyed with in Pyramids, badly, mm. and then <laughs> toyed with again in Small Gods with quite a bit of success. And this is like this is like the culmination of so much of that musing on like belief and humanity and it's it's just so good that i love that it's kind of like the peak of that particular arc that i love yeah earlier in in our recordings we were saying you know oh this book is a philosophy book or oh this book is a terry plot book and this book really feels like he's like oh no i can do both (laughs) I, i will say that it was a good book but it doesn't stand out for me the way that it does for you guys, and I don't know why that is. <laughs> Mostly because a lot of it is that it's synthesizing so many of these things that we've seen play out in other books. Like, I mean, for me, Reaper Man is a more interesting death book. Mm. And then the ideas about belief and humanity kind of play out in all of Pratchett's work. So it was like, it's a very prototypical Pratchett book, but mm. it didn't, it wouldn't stand out as like my favorite. Yeah, I'm going to agree with Minna here. I I would put this as a more middling entry in, uh, you know, Terry's series of books, which like 
saying that sounds more damning uh, than than it really should be because like I, I do think a Terry Pratchett book is head and shoulders. Uh, I, I would prefer to read it than a lot of other books out there. Like even something like Interesting Times, I would probably reach for before many other books that I could possibly read. This is a refinement of ideas that we've seen before. Um, but you know, as Minda pointed out, like we see ideas pop up again and again throughout Discworld. Like Terry is constantly having conversations about some of these core themes. And I think it gets refined even better later. Uh, one of the things that I, I kind of feel bad about is, you know, my real entry point into the Terry Pratchett like Discworld is the death books. Um, but he kind of wraps those up earlier in his career and we don't get to see truly what he is capable of as a writer until much later on in his career. He gets so much better as things go on. Um, and, you know, trying to find a peak is really difficult. But I, you know, when I am standing atop this book, I am looking at peaks much higher than it. Uh, <laughs> I, I can say that for sure. Yeah. And that's that's reasonable. I think part of it is that a lot of the individual sets of quotes really, really are standout in this one. I mean, not to say that they aren't in the others, but like the the death speech about the, you know, grinding down the universe to find an atom of uh, an atom of justice, et cetera, is it's just uh, so good. Yeah, I was. I was legitimately Googling that. Like, I feel like I've heard this, but like, this feels like something I've heard a lot of times. Not in a bad way. It feels like that Shakespeare quote you've heard a billion times. Yeah, it's it's one of the most quoted context, Terry kind of quotes. So I don't know if I've seen the quote floating around. Probably. Yeah, probably. probably. I mean, it, it's good. Like, yeah. again, I don't want to imply that I didn't enjoy this book. I am the the where this book struggles is that I'm comparing it to other Terry Pratchett books <laughs> in my head, which is, is a tough metric, even if you're Terry Pratchett. But like, you know, uh, when, when you say it's your favorite, like, yeah, I get it. It's a lot of people's favorites and it should be. Yeah. I, I adore Death as a character. He is so charming and, and warm and, and lovely. And the way that Pratchett makes this concept that is so full of dread and like, you know, painful injustice when, when people encounter death in their own life. And it is such a comforting thing. I mean, when when Pratchett passed away, you know, they they tweeted about his encounter with death uh, that, that, that he wrote. And it's so beautiful. It took this very, you know, dark and, and sad event that I know affected so many people in his audience so dramatically. But it is it was such a comfort to think of Pratchett encountering at the end of life a figure who is so kind and sweet and gentle. Uh, and I, I think this book definitely epitomizes that uh, very well. So obviously it could and should be many people's favorite yeah. book. Yeah. It, death in this book, you know, it, I would agree actually with Minna that the, the Reaper Man is probably the more, is where death really pivots you know, what What hope does the harvest have except for the care of the Reaper Man is such a powerful quote. 
and it, he's much more like he's much more human in in Hogfather, I think, than death where he was you know when all of the other deaths were popping up he was literally just death himself you know yeah and this he's death and the hog father and struggling with injustices and like he does care and which is why he which is why he does all of the things all of the little vignettes in this book but he's he's more discworld death and less death death yeah i, I something that i was thinking about like while i was reading this was how much is the spirit of the hog father affecting death in this book? Oh yeah. Like how much is the assumption of this role morphing his personality? Because it's definitely like, he's definitely like still death, but there is definitely like there, there there's some, I'll say aberrances in how he acts. The auditors would um, agree. Yeah. I mean, like the, um, that, um, I mean, he even, it's even textual that the the little match girl scene um, when Albert says, you know, buddy, you know, you're you can't just you can't just give her life. You know, you can't you can't do that. And he says, just like watch me. The hog father can. The hog father gives gifts mm-hmm. and he does mm-hmm. it. I think the thing is, is that it gives him an excuse. Yeah. Like the same way that mm-hmm. Reaper Man gives him an excuse to like pretend to be human, basically. It gives him that narrative room where he is allowed to be kind in a way that he is not usually allowed to be kind. Yeah, we, we can we can go back and forth on role playing bleed for uh, <laughs> the Hogfather <laughs> and, and Death. Um, I, 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 we definitely reach a point where Death is either indulging things that he has always wanted, or the role is able to uh, affect him. And I'd say at different points in the book, um, you could easily say that it's one way or another. I, I do think it's both, and I do think uh, it is a very fascinating thing to put in front of death uh especially because you know he's a figure that appears in every terry pratchett book you know forever so we're going to see repercussions of this in like little snippets of his appearances down the road too yeah Mm -hmm. for me i think the really fascinating thing they did with putting death in the role of Hogfather is that death especially in discworld is the thing that comes for all people for you know Kings, gods, little people on the street. The hog father does not treat people equally because the hog father treats people according to, you know, the rules of the world that they live in. The hog father has to deal with socioeconomic differences in a way that death has not had to do and does not mm. enjoy. And death is anti-capitalist. Oh, yeah. I mean, he yeah. is. <laughs> I mean, I love how much of Terry Pratchett's death really draws on that, like, really, like, medieval idea of death as mm-hmm. like kind of like this great leveler mm-hmm. yeah there's there's a line that albert has um which is oh yes you see one of the things that makes folks even more jolly is knowing there are people who ate that's how it goes master master and death's response is i think it's like like i know that there's like there's like there's other quotes that people have that are like like that, like they remember more from this, but this is the one where it like flicked a switch for me. It is no death stood up. This is how it shouldn't go. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it was just that was the point where I where it's like it it occur it occurs 
little before halfway through the book. And that's when it really clears to me that it's like, this is something like death is really different in this. Uh, or like he's empowered to do something different. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's in the same sequence or if it's a different sequence, but another time that Death is talking with Albert, he says something about, it is unfair. That's Life Master, but I'm not. And I think that's such a such a key thing about Death's character. Yeah. yeah. Not even nice, said Death, but it's easy to be nice if you're rich. Is this fair? Mm-hmm. I, I really like a lot of those interactions between Death and Albert as well. And there's a there's a tinge to them also uh, where death kind of forces Albert to explain. <laughs> and you can see that Albert is becoming less and less convinced in his own understanding of the universe as he exp- as he tries to explain this thing to death. And it sort of reminds me of like the tactic when, you know, when mm-hmm. somebody makes a bigoted joke and you can't you don't really have the ability to confront them directly so you are like what what on earth do you mean could you explain that and they sort of gradually realize that it's it's bad mm-hmm. we're we're second really naturally into talking about themes actually yeah and there is a theme that I wanted to discuss uh, in this book that uh, when I was younger, I, I got very frustrated with Susan as a character. And this book was actually one of the epitomes of that frustration because Susan has such a bad relationship with her grandfather when he's a perfectly lovely person. Um, and, you know, as a kid, that really frustrated me, uh, you know, revisiting this now as an adult and the way Susan's journey or the how Susan's journey is really about kind of body and identity and like she doesn't want to be defined in certain ways and is afraid of things that she is and has an idea of who she's supposed to be and she's torn between two thoughts of who she's supposed to be and really has to find a middle ground settling like in what she is and and being happy with that is like such a struggle like there is a real trans narrative kind of like buried (laughs) in this uh that is so much more interesting and complex to me now like you know, having so many people in my life that, that, that struggle with those feelings. Like, I feel like I understand where Susan is coming from a lot better. And I understand why her journey is so difficult now and why that's caused strain with someone who, you know, death, I I don't think has any ill will towards Susan at all, but definitely manipulates her. Um, oh yeah. Even if it's ma- manipulating her at the end of the journey, where I'd say arguably she is happier having gone through this adventure uh, because she's learned something about herself. Uh, it's a much more complicated characterization than I think I gave it credit yeah. for when I was much younger. Yeah, and mm-hmm. one of the things that stands out to me is the the utility of the Tooth Fairy Zone because death doesn't exist there and Susan finally gets what she wants and doesn't like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's finally normal and doesn't want to be anymore. She's finally, well, she's she's finally without her death powers right. but she's still Susan. Right. Which I think Ma probably is instructive to her because she's still as smart as she is. Right. 
Mm -hmm. I think she was really afraid of losing herself. Yeah. I mean, it's not even just a trans narrative. It's like a non-binary narrative, too, which is... It's cool. Mm-hmm. Susan, I, I yeah. like so much more as a character having reread this. I, I think I, I glommed on to adult Susan a bit more than, than teen Susan we got in Soul Music. Mm. And, and part of that might just be like, she she is still fighting these things, but she is a little bit more aware of what she is and who she is. Well, she's having more fun with it. <laughs> yeah, she has more fun with it. And God, the poker, the, like the the poker thing, the poker scene at the like the start of the book is so funny. <laughs> Literally put, oh, why she's so cool. And because we skipped Feet of Clay, this is the the first appearance uh, for Justin, at least, of beers, which is I think my favorite yeah. bar. I don't think anything will ever beat the mended drum for me, but beers was mm. pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, the other, like, the, the hit-you-on-the-head theme in this book is, you know, the the flow of time and religious observation and how mm. things change their meanings but have this deeper kernel that, that drives them. And that's all you need to say about that. I think it's interesting <laughs> to me that we all came at that same theme from, like, slightly different angles. Because, like, you came at mm. it from, like, religious mm-hmm. and cultural observations for me, it was more that, like, it was about people giving the world meaning rather than, like, physical laws giving the world meaning. I think Anna put something mm-hmm. else entirely. Yeah, people create gods. I've got it, I've got it all the way at the bottom here. The, that for me, for me at least, it, you know, it feels like a, the reflection on how traditions and rituals morph through time. That um, people have, you know, the, the rituals that tie them together at times like you know, the longest night of the year and what that means changes as the millennia go past. I will say something I found really enjoyable about the way that this one treated the themes about belief and belief making things real is that it wasn't that the sun literally wouldn't come up. It's that the sun wouldn't rise a mere ball of gas would make the world lighter. And I think that says so much about Terry's perspective and just how he's writing about belief and humanity. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, when I heard the learned astronomer perspective. (laughs) And I think it like explains very well why Susan inherits powers uh, from death because like, Death is her grandfather, mm-hmm. and grandfathers pass traits on to their grandchildren, <laughs> even if there's no like actual physical connection. <laughs> it, you know, it explains like, well, yeah, death is a person, and therefore has passed that on, which I, I think says something beautiful about adoption in mm-hmm. there too. Yeah, and and like creating a family that way. I uh, love that it says it's like genetics great. is more than little spirals. <laughs> I'm like, there's literally no <laughs> genetics here. <laughs> Refer back to our episode on Mort with the discussion of the polycule. <laughs> yes. I I mean, that's the one thing I don't think I can ever forgive <laughs> Terry for is killing Mort and Isabel uh, without giving without giving us another book with them. Um, that but that, that's that I will I will that's more just that's for shipping quarter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One other thing that just sort of 
like ricocheted into my brain over the weekend. Uh, we were watching this new show on Netflix, Waffles and Mochi, which is a uh, Michelle Obama uh, written and directed and something or other uh, kids show. Uh, and the theme song, uh, among other parts of it, goes, um, listen to your vegetables and eat your parents. And the, one of the things that happens in this book is that kids are much more tolerant of darker, deeper stuff than I think adults give them credit for because they understand that it's transgressive humor and, uh, or, or just, you know, it's okay to be a little bit scared as long as you know, there's safety behind, you know, behind your governess, um, which seems like is played with uh, on and off, you know, the, the, the fact that, that they recognize tea time as the threat and not death because they act, kids know what badness actually is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because it's what it does, not what it looks like. And and along mm-hmm. with that, you know, all the kids in line to see the hog father, they see death for who he is. <laughs> and they're just like, yeah. oh, guess it's a skeleton this year. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> Did you I see saw that pig do a wee. <laughs> all of them. <laughs> yeah. And the, the five going on 35 stuff I thought was very funny. Oh, yeah. Mm. And a big sword. <laughs> God, the, the 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 sword, the sword, the sword, the sword conversation is. See, will be nice. Yes, then we have a compact. <laughs> <laughs> no, it can't be. It can't be metal. <laughs> yeah, and you know the the just sort of the general idea of like the the spare belief sloshing around and and just being readily available is very discworldy. Mm-hmm. reminds me of like you know the sorcery wars or even Rincewind could do magic it's always interesting when we have these books especially with the auditors how much of Terry's worldview relies on like individuality as like a kind of a base foundational concept like specifically the auditors are a consensus being until one of them says something like I and then they're immediately stuffed out and they're always not even just villains, they're like an elemental evil that need to be stopped. And they're so much more compelling than the dungeon dimensions. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yes. Because I think that's a thing that we're really, like, it's more psychologically realistic to us than things from the dungeon dimensions. You know, like, yeah. this is like... They're, they're a lot scarier than the tentacled horrors. We live in a capitalist world that does not always value people. Yeah, it's it's um, yeah. It, they have a similar vibe to like the Vogons in in the Douglas Adams books, mm-hmm. you know, bureaucratic, faceless, gray. Because it's recently in my head, but the but the more recent video, the the more recent media that I've consumed that sort of got me thinking about the auditors, um, is the hiss from control, where in the end the real enemy was crushing conformism. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it's there, like, it is that entire thing of, like, wanting to remove variance and remove everything, and just to make everything work perfect without accounting for any, without accounting for life, uh, so much that they hate it, is a, it's it's a much more, um, it's a much more interesting thing than, oops, we warped reality too much and some tentacles came yeah. out. Yeah. Um, which I'm very glad that Terry like changed his otherworldly antagonists. Mm-hmm. We've talked about this already, but a lot of time spent on socioeconomic inequality. Yeah, a yeah. lot. 
probably my favorite scene was the like one of my favorite most small joys of this book was the star manager freaking yeah. out of her death giving away toys. Yes. 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 <laughs> Absolutely. And the the scene with with the king, um, which you used very nice air quotes on. Yeah. In your, your summary. Uh and and alongside the scene with the king, the scene with Albert immediately afterward, where he takes the king aside and is like, "So you know, if you if you have the bright idea to you know come by here in a couple of days and with some pointy sticks, uh, they'll go real bad for you." Which is peak Albert. I love Albert. <laughs> he has a very fun role in this. Like he definitely like like in in previous entries where we've seen death albert is a little bit more of a like a stick in the mud yeah but in this one he is he is fully realized the genre he is in is we have to save christmas <laughs> yes <laughs> and he's just like let's do this uh well and he's he's focused all of his stick in the mud powers on hating being a pixie the the brief aside to like oh you don't actually want elves if you gave him a chisel, they'd use it on your forehead. You know, that was that was very, like, we delved deep into Lords and Ladies. Yeah. So something that really struck me with Susan is that she is so clearly playing up the, like, magical nanny trope. And, like, there's a couple of places, like, this shows up in a lot of narratives. Um, I mean, even, like, I think Aaron said that he was fan casting her as uh, Jenna Coleman, which is really funny because she uh, also Justin, plays yeah. that role. Yeah, that was me. <laughs> In, in Doctor <laughs> Who for a little bit. <laughs> but specifically, I love that it referenced, like, she would not be caught dancing on rooftops with chimney sweeps because she's so clearly the anti-movie Mary Poppins. But I also think that book Mary Poppins and Susan might get on. <laughs> in in Susan's, like, governess bits, I think my favorite is when she's telling the story, the bedtime story to the children uh-huh. You know, and is like, and then Jack chopped down the beanstalk, adding ecological vandalism to the, you know, already large list of crimes. I love her because she like she could so easily be just adding like only like aridity to these kids' lives, but actually she's adding like realism that isn't boring and that understands mm-hmm. their concerns. Like I love that she's fighting off monsters for them and making them like realize that I don't know. It's there's something as a very a person who is a very anxious child. There's something that I really adore about the way she handles the monsters. Yeah, it, it, there is some, and I think it, it talks a lot about like you get this more in the witches, um, but there's a difference between self defensive practical violence and like fantasy violence uh and violence that is like actually morally corrupt that terry pratchett like establishes very well in his world like you know there is something extremely heroic about a nanny with a poker or a witch with a frying pan smacking a monster in the head and sending them away uh i i truly truly love I think that. especially <laughs> beautiful in that these Kids have been made to have all of these anxieties by adults in their lives. Like, specifically, it's the fault of the previous nanny. And she's like, here's a mm-hmm. good practical way to get rid of this anxiety and deal with it. And, like, beautiful. Yeah. And, you know, their ironclad faith in the poker uh-huh. is really what, what saves the day in the end. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I-, I liked the bit that Death said about, you know, the world will teach them about monsters soon. It's good to believe in the poker. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, Terry Pratchett uh, is absolutely radical in some of that rhetoric, uh, which, you know, we get to see later. And, oh, it's just so good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there, there are monsters and most of them don't look like monsters. God, we've touched on a lot of these buttons. Um, uh, we've got to talk about the falling angel meets the rising ape, though, because that's such like a I can just imagine him being like dashing that out at like three in the morning and being like, holy shit, that's good. I think we need to read it's that such a out. brilliant line. <laughs> like it's it's one of those lines where every time I read that, it like gives me chills. It's so mm. good. The the whole exchange where that gets laid out is, and it's very comforting to come from death. And it's just sort of like, um, it's just, I keep going back to Mort and just like there, um, where he, like, you know, there's the line that, oh, that sticks with you from Mort. There's no justice. There's just us. Yeah. It's just me. Um, yeah. and like, it's just how far we've come. Mm-hmm. To where, like, death understands that justice is, yeah, it's a human concept, but it's one that they need to exist and to be human, mm-hmm. as well as other things. Do we want to read out that quote, or? All right, said Susan. I'm not stupid. You're saying humans need fantasies to make life bearable? Really? As if it was some kind of pink pill? No. Humans need fantasy to be human. To be the place where the falling angels meet the rising ape. Tooth fairies? Hogfathers? Little? Yes. As practice. You have to start out learning to believe the little lies. So we can believe the big ones? Yes. Justice, mercy, duty, that sort of thing. They're not the same at all. You think so. Then take the universe and grind it down to the finest powder and sieve it through the finest sieve. And then show me one atom of justice, one molecule of mercy. And yet, death waved a hand, and yet you act as if there is some ideal order in the world, as if there is some rightness in the universe by which it may be judged. It's so good. Yeah. I will say, I did have one other moment that hit me that was like a little button, not like the big button. Specifically, Ponder Stibbins is thinking this, which is an interesting one, because it feels so much about Susan's journey. It's amazing how people define roles for themselves and put handcuffs on their experience and are constantly surprised by the things a roulette universe spins at them. And like, that's incredibly relatable. (laughs) Yeah. A lot of the time, identity is slightly a lie you're telling to yourself and sometimes you need to like look past that i was surprised looking back on the book the moment that made me cry in it mm. uh, which is when death gives susan the card <laughs> mm. um like i wasn't like looking back on it it's like if you had told me that would be the moment i i, I would get that it's like hmm i didn't think i didn't, okay i'll Maybe, uh, but it was like that was the, like looking back on it. It surprised me that was the one, that was the moment where I lost it during my read through. It's kind of the the culmination of so many other things. I just want to touch briefly on the uh, the B. S. Johnson B plot um, because I I just love B. S. Johnson and the mm-hmm. the shower or bath or sauna or all of the above i guess plus um, musical pipes just, yeah <laughs> of course bs johnson would hook it up to the most dangerous organ in the world 
it really like lets him lean into his nonsense. Uh, Dylan noted in, in when we did soul music that the level of detail to which he described making the space invaders, the mechanical space invaders game oh was like, uh, he must've written out diagrams and because it just like seemed like it could work. <laughs> okay. A little tiny moment that I love here is um, when uh, Hex tells divide by cucumber <laughs> error, please reinstall universe and reboot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. um, and then uh, Red Cully asks what rebooting is. <laughs> Give it a good kick, do you? Oh, no, of course. Well, that is what. Yes, in fact, Adrian goes around the back and prods it with his foot, but in a, in a technical way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't think that's just my. I've never heard my job explained so well. <laughs> I do love how many things about hacks are just like somebody heard what a computer was and a lot of terms associated with it and just took them as literally as possible. I am convinced hex is one of those things that seeps through realities, only it just never became a problem. Well, they they ask, you know, uh, why does it need to have that mouse? Yes, there's a oh, mouse. And the, yeah. uh, oh, and all of there's the ram? tiny religious, t- tiny yeah. religious images. Icons. <laughs> oh my god! And and at one point, uh, Hex is running the Eliza therapy bot on the bursar, uh, and, and also apparently coding works uh, on on uh, what's it? Um, Punch cards. Well, that, but also we we previously established that magic works in the disc on common sense, and apparently coding does as well because the you know hex is having a problem and Ridcully just types in dried frog pills, <laughs> lots of dried frog pills. I, I love. Uh, I love um, everything about hex. I I had I had a few other little little bits that were my favorites another wizard piece that i adore is spold's un um the the spold's unstirring divisor uh where they would end up with one beaker full of all of the alcohol metabolites and one beaker full of everything else yeah yes (laughs) alive Um. broadly Broadly, is good. <laughs> living tissue certainly one moment that, that i found uh unexpectedly touching in the book was i think it, it's the dean giving the bursar uh, a hog's watch <laughs> gift the dry like, frog's obviously box. it ends it ends with a pull pull the rug out joke but like it is just a very thoughtful and genuine thing that the dean has done which is very very funny to me and like very sweet and i'm like Okay, you know, good play, good Christmas moment yeah. that you managed to nail there. Yeah. And the the scene with death down at the deep dark recesses of the ocean is is such a mm. perfect encapsulation of of death, especially in Discworld because he just he has equal care for everything. Yeah. There's also there's also a set of lines between death and Albert. Uh, that goes something along the lines of the night is young. No, the night is old. The night is always old. No, it ain't. Yes, but it is more dramatic this way. <laughs> <laughs> Which is funny because he critiqued the the other death for uh, being a, a drama queen. Uh, you know, showing up at the stroke of midnight with a gold crown. You said something about 
the Eliza therapy bot with Hex. And I that was actually one of my confusions that I hadn't okay. brought up before. So uh, it was one of the earliest chatbots, and I I can't remember the style of therapy but that it mimics. There's a specific style of therapy where you say something and the therapist or, or the therapy bot uh, basically restates what you said as a question. So like, you know, you're like, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not feeling great today. And the, the bot says, you say that you're not feeling great today. Why do you think that is? Or, you know, it just, it just re- rephrases everything you say as a question. And it's one of the earliest attempts at the Turing test too. I, I'm very glad that you knew that because I was sitting here reading this part, like I'm flashing back to that one chat bot that you talked to on the internet in yes. <laughs> when I was in high school. And I was like, I, I can't have been around yet. <laughs> uh, Eliza was from the 1960s. Wow. That technology is way older than I thought it was. Uh, the the therapy that it's uh, trying to emulate is called Rogerian therapy. Yes. Just for completeness sake. Com- completeness is our goal. <laughs> you do want to read all the books. Broadly in the correct order. Completeness is our burden, <laughs> broadly, given how long we talk in these episodes. <laughs> the sword bit was great. Um, yeah, I mean, what what an all time great line! Swords are not meant to be safe. Is just <laughs> beautiful. What if she cuts herself? She could hurt herself. It'll be educational. It'll be a very important lesson. Yeah, it's educational. <laughs> it's educational. <laughs> oh oh god uh bilius i think is another one of my just like character favorites this poor man yeah and <laughs> his his evil glee when the the hangover cure works and it's all rebounded back on <laughs> on biblius yeah yes okay moving on yeah the anti-capitalist message from is is really the thing that I, stands out to me as something that really s- s- stood up well on you know a twenty year later reading. Definitely, yeah, it, it's something that definitely feels like, especially on the points where death is like arguing against unfairness. The parts where it feels like the angriest in this book, um, which I think we, we've, we've talked before about angry Terry, and it's it's a like sometimes it maybe doesn't come through as coherently but this is uh very it it comes through here very clean yeah Mm -hmm. it's really interesting to me how terry uses death as uh as an author authorial voice do we want to talk about things that haven't aged well Uh, i think that the thing that that james and anna brought up at the beginning with regard to you know the the mental illness coding of of the the various antagonists i think is is the one thing that that sort of yeah, not big into the, like the way that comedy treats mental illness and neurodivergence, but this is yeah. I I also say same with the handling of banjo. That seems hmm. more and more mm-hmm. dubious to me every time I read this book. Yeah, I mean yeah. he was very clearly just exploited and abused because he was large. Well, not just large. There's clearly like, he's not 
think he's somewhere in the realms of neurodivergent in a way that's not really articulated or treated particularly well. Yeah. 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 Disability in general, I would say this is not one of Terry's best works uh, uh, regarding that subject. Um, I I think there is like, we mentioned like there being a fix it fix section. I I think some of this issues could be addressed uh, at least with uh, tea time talking about like cruelty and and willingness to do cruel things and how that can set you apart uh from people around you uh like mm-hmm. taking it away from a headspace of oh this person isn't right in the head it's like oh this person isn't right in the morals yeah. uh yeah. W- would make the statements that Terry is actually trying to make much stronger Again, I, I think it gets muddled because, like, there is a very intentional. I mean, anyone who has done the the basic like watching of Unbreakable knows that it's an old school comic trope uh, to draw your villains to have a large head or large eyes to emphasize that they do not see the world in the proper way. And Tea Time very specifically has an eye that sees the world in not the proper way. Uh, So like, you know, there is a reference to that trope to tell us something about the character. But ultimately, you know, as as we grow a world that is kinder and uh, more aware of the ways in which we harm people, uh, it's more indefensible to call upon a trope like that we've we've also got the bursar too um yeah the mixed handling of the bursar i feel like he would have been better if he'd stuck to being like an extremely anxious man uh but he's definitely gone into like full-on comedic like psychedelia yeah i i liked him i liked him a lot better like when when they went to lanker and you know, he was just extremely, extremely nervous, but was still coherent. I enjoy the bloody stupid Johnson thing, but I don't think we needed that plot thread or that it any that it went anywhere in particular. Yeah, outside of maybe the group. Well, it's no. a bloody stupid Johnson thing, so it it doesn't do what it's supposed yeah, to do. Yeah, like, I felt like it should have been building up to a better punchline. It didn't. <laughs> Like, I felt like the punchline on it was both extremely vague and didn't really uh, live up to the amount of buildup that happened towards it. Yeah, that's valid. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I love the fact that Death uh, gives a kid a Captain Carrot action figure. Yeah. 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 That was my highlighted reference. <laughs> yeah. One man watch too. Yeah. Like, oh, great. Thank you. <laughs> Less happy about the Agatian ninja, but you know, that's for a different um, <laughs> episode that we already did. <laughs> that's being a reannual to put into our interesting times yeah. episode. Uh, being written in the 90s, oh, yeah. uh, oh, like, yeah. that is very much calling out a real thing that people were obsessed with making toys of in the 90s. Yeah. So. I feel like there was an It's a Small World pastiche in the toy shop, and yeah. I, yes. I enjoyed the fact that it was making fun of it. <laughs> yes, and the mall, M-A-U-L. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Right, which is really funny to me, because we have seen a literal shopping mall <laughs> as the antagonist in one of these books. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's true. I, I like the fact that I feel like Susan 
gets witchier every time we see her. Mm-hmm. Um, that she she's definitely got some strong witch vibes. Um, in mm-hmm. the you know, in the feeling that witches adapt to suit their environments, and I feel like Susan is a perhaps an urban witch, and also the fact that she sees things very clearly, like for what they actually are, which is also like a pretty common theme of the witches yeah i I mean one thing that i think it reveals is just terry knows how he likes to write women (laughs) yeah uh which is it's just fun uh uh to see because i like the way he writes his uh female characters i i also like that we've got really kind of textual confirmation that ponder and rincewind think alike ponder also has that Mm -hmm. that musing that he is certain that the world ought to work in a more efficient way which is extremely Rincewind feeling. Um, and I kind of mm-hmm. feel like Terry took all of the like interesting bits out of Rincewind and just like <laughs> shoved them into Ponder and I'm not mad about it. Ponder yeah. is Rincewind if Rincewind worked. Yeah. yeah. Like if, if Rincewind like was competent and his worldview could be borne out. Hex keeps talking about electricity and I'm like, Rincewind very first book is like, I feel like the lightning should do something. Mm-hmm. Harness the lightning, but where would you put the reins? I wanted to circle back to that point, though, where Ponder is like, you know, the the universe, should, the world should work in a more efficient way, which, like, setting that next to what the auditors want, which is the universe to work in a more efficient way, yeah. is a really interesting, like, you know, counterpoint or, or comparison point. Yeah. Yeah, it is true that they're very much taking the magic out of magic, and, like, with the, with the wizards, that's played as kind of a good thing like an old guard new guard kind of situation and then with the but i think it it's somewhat negated just because the wizards in in whatever that building is so clearly have no idea what they're doing they're just chaotic well i mean that's the best like one of the cool things about wizards in pratchett books is it is power like like these books very firmly say that hey Power in the form of magic is good so long as it's ineffectual. Uh, Like, that's pretty cool. Like, hey, yeah, we should have all the fun of magical power. We shouldn't have any of the drawbacks you get when people abuse that power, Uh, which (laughs) is a fun statement. Poor Moto. Poor Moto. I love that. I love that when he boards the bathroom pack up again, he leaves the nails out enough that he could pry them up next time. Yeah. He knows wizards. He knows people. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So I have a question, and and this is this is inspired by an essay I read by um, I, I will say friend of the show, even if he has never been on the show, Jeff Stormer. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a that's a good assessment of him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And um, in the newest edition of Worldwide Wrestling, has an essay about how how viewing wrestling as a LARP because it is something that a group engages in has buy-in and has certain expectations that are rewarded by their buy-in. So my question is: Is Santa slash the Hogfather a LARP? Yeah, sure. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> Particularly if you are uh, death. Playing the hog father. <laughs> like your role will change in it as you become like older person and a parent, but you will still be participating in this LARP for the, you know, 
foreseeable for, for the foreseeable entirety of your life. Yeah. Well, and there's that there's that brief there's that brief band of like elementary and early middle school where you have to maintain the kayfabe, even if um even if your friends are are, are not what they're, they're marks is that the right term there's a phase where you think it's not cool I and mean, then I mean, like no of course this doesn't but you you buy into it still and it's uh but yeah it's it's a larp it's a it is a larp you are inducted to, into as a child and slowly you learn the rules of it and what is expected of you in this larp <laughs> love it um i also like that the tooth fairies are gig workers apparently mm-hmm I'm just remembering the, the, the Shrek 2 thing. They don't even have dental. <laughs> uh, also, the fact that pencils apparently grow on trees. Uh-huh. And, yep. and bananas are a fish. I loved that just because I was like, oh, here it comes. Bananas are bananas are a fish. <laughs> like I was here, I was ready for bananas or a berry. Other stuff quickly. I just wanted to note as a person who works at a university. Uh, gosh, Ridcully is definitely a a university administrator because I could certainly run a marvelous university here if only we didn't have all have these damn students underfoot all the time. <laughs> is a big mood. Um, I also really enjoyed that Ponder specific name checks Clark's third law. Mm-hmm. That was made me very happy. There was a weird Three Stooges reference to it that I could not figure out. The the one one more one more. Uh, Willow bark uh, is an analgesic, oh. and then Red Clay is like, well, really well, possibly. I'll, that's probably better to give it to him by mouth. Uh-uh. <laughs> uh. There were a lot of there were a lot of like multi step puns in this in this book. Uh, I checked the. Uh, annotations and I'm like this this Latin family motto has to translate to something fun and I don't know if we've gone over this before but it does translate to don't fear the reaper and I love that who uh, Sir Terry's uh, family yeah and, and death's family yeah, yeah. Susan's. Susan's. Susan I don't remember if we've or encountered Stone, it Stone, but it delights yeah. me every time yeah and that's that's Terry's family motto too oh. on his coat of arms okay so I personally just from having rewatched or having done a, like a season marathon of Doctor Who in recent memory, I am very hard like fan casting Jenna Louise Coleman as Susan. Into it. Like we'll have to dye the hair a little bit, but just just that energy. I mean, especially because like literally she does play the magical nanny trope in the Victorian episode, the Abominable Snowman. I yeah. Think. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I mean, true. and also she's a magical nanny in her modern life too. It's fine. She does this trope very well. It's beautiful. <laughs> uh, the second you said, it, I was like, yes, I can see that. Um, although I will admit, <laughs> I also a little bit pictured Carol Ann Ford, which isn't a uh, modern fan casting, just because at some point a line struck me where it was like. Susan was used to buildings that were bigger on the inside. Her grandfather had never gotten the hang of dimensions. And I was like, is she just Susan from Doctor Who? I I almost wonder whether that's where the name came from. That had to have been a deliberate reference, though. Putting all of those things together in two sentences. Yeah, that was like, I was like, as soon as like that, like you connect the dots there, I'm like, that, that. And 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 then my parallel thought was, how did Pratchett never write a Doctor How Who? How did Pratchett episode? never write Doctor Who? He's so perfect philosophically. There, there's and like totally. the, I guess he sort of fell in the gap between because were they producing the show in the in the nineties? But they were producing EU. He would have been beautiful in EU as well. Like mm. He he was he was still around while I think the show was in production in some stages. The you know? New Who. 
Yeah. I, I think uh, I will say this. It took England forever to give Pratchett accolades. Like he did get them, but they gave it them to him very begrudgingly. Um, so if there's any institution, uh, he really had to really do some real magic to get even a slight nod in, in his life. I think it's just part of me wishes he'd been in like one of the like novel series or something that was happening during the wilderness years. Like what if there'd been some like <laughs> relatively early Pratchett in there? Anything else we want to touch on or should we jump into the last two bits of the recording? We good? Um, I think I am good. Okay. Uh, otherwise, we'll be here for three more hours. Let's hit the bits. So, how would we rate this book? Um, I I'm gonna give it 120 out of 100 taps in the university bathroom. James, how would you rate this book? I'll give it three out of six hogs doing a wee. Um, <laughs> All right. Um, I will give it 13 out of 12 weapons accessories for my Captain Carrot action figure. There aren't Knights of Hog's Watch, but my brain is tempted to say 10 out of 12 Knights of Hog- Hog's Watch. <laughs> there, there is a very funny bit, though, where Red Color is discussing the, the, that song. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would give it uh, 13 out of 10 of Banjo's Fingers, because he can count as well as I can. And now the, the last bit where Justin uh, reads for the first time, I hope, the, uh, the book summary of the next book we're reading, which is circling back to Masquerade. Ooh. Okay, there we go. Got this here. Uh, okay, I've got a back cover summary here. The ghost in the bone-white mask who haunts the Ankh-Mor Pork Opera House was always considered a benign presence. Some would even say lucky until he started killing people. The sudden rash of bizarre backstage deaths now threatens to mar the operatic debut of country girl Perdita X, nay Agnes, Knit. She of the ample body and ampler voice. Perdita's expected to hide it in the chorus and sing arias out loud while a more petitely presentable soprano mouths the notes. But at least it's an escape from scheming Nanny Og and old Granny Weatherwax back home who want her to join their witchy ranks. Once Granny sets her mind on something, however, it's difficult, and often hazardous, to dissuade her. And no opera-prowling phantom fiend is going to keep a pair of determined hags down on the farm after they've seen Ankh-Mor Pork. Hell yeah, we're doing Phantom of the Opera. Yep. The last time I was exposed to anything of Phantom of the Opera was probably Wishbone. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's, about, that's about where I'm at with that, too. We might have to do some cultural studies for this one. The Complete Discography is an independent production by four people who just really like these books. All opinions expressed during the show are our own. All quotes from primary or related works are used under the Fair Use Doctrine and remain copyrighted by their original owners. The music from this podcast is sourced from Incompetech. That info can be found in the show notes. The rest of it is distributed under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it. Please share it, but say where you got it, don't make money off it, and don't change it. Connect with the show at Pod, which is A-T-U-I-N underscore P-O-D, or email us at atuin.pod at gmail.com.